pronounce this completely evil. wrong. Um, e- evil, evil. Evil, evil. Yeah. Tell me about sort of creating them and what you want. Sure. To I mean, I, I sort of knew that I wanted them to be a not very likable Stone Age culture, <laughs> and they're not endearing. I mean, they're not meant to be endearing. Um, they're sort of opaque and difficult and set in their ways, like all small communities are. But it was the physical contours of it were based on Angra dos Reis in the archipelago of southern Brazil. Okay. Um, and it's just when I went there for the first time, the fecundity of it. You know, you really have a sense there, and on certain other places, that humans aren't meant to be there. The <laughs> amount of work and struggle it takes to hack past the jungle, to just get through, to get a toehold, is extraordinary. And and I I like the idea of certain lands being impregnable. Certain, air, certain, you know, when we think that the whole world is so mappable and knowable, and there is very, there is very little land that we cannot or have not explored. There, I wanted there to be an island that was so hostile to man that the people who live there, like Iceland and we were really working very, very hard against nature all the time. You know, in an age where we take glory from the land, the land doesn't really want to cooperate with us often. And I wanted to have a people who were in constant battle and struggle with, with their land, even as their land held terrible secrets. And I also wanted a people who, um, I, I guess, were resigned to... I mean, they, they simply don't know another way of being. Their dreams are sort of eternal dreams and common dreams of long life and of good health until then. But not really beyond that, and that in, in many ways is you know life everywhere stripped down to its essence. So I wanted them to feel elemental, but not simple in, in their in their philosophies, and and they also are sort of like violent Buddhists in a lot of ways, which sounds like a contradiction. But the idea that they have of of, of law, you know, of nothingness, was something that I always found very attractive in, in Buddhism, certainly, and probably a, a healthy way to think about life in general. But I did like how neatly their life began and how neatly it closed you know that when you went nuts you either died or you went nuts and you were just cast into the jungle from whence you came and then you weren't seen again there's a sort of lack of sentimentality about about the life cycle or there was or there was a clarity about the life cycle right 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 exactly it was a bit that was again because i'm coming from it from a nice western middle class so old people once they once they if they gone through this initiation right, right had then started to lose their their, right. their mind would right. sent off but and that's basically what we do too to our <laughs> old people but in a much more protracted prolonged sort of guilt-ridden hypocritical way but i do think it is something we do so is there a, is there always a way with these that kind of narrative whether it's yeah the, the tempest or comrade that we're seeing a vision of ourselves that we like to feel comfortably de- de- detached from because we sort of think we're not doing these things but in fact we are when we're putting parents into yeah, older. I think so. Okay. I think so. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I would far rather be you know let off into the jungle and you know kind of wander off than sit in some horrible home for you know decades. I mean, you know, science is unable, as you said, to prolong our lives. But a life prolonged in and of itself is worth nothing. I think. And there's always, again, in these narratives, the way that we idealise and sentimentalise um, these people as though perhaps they hold a right. secret and, a, you know, and, and eternal youth is, right. is one of them. But the, the other side of it is this rather extraordinary scene from the middle of... Our, I don't think I'm giving away too much, I think, um, to suggest that there is this extraordinarily brutal, again, rather pitiless, un- unemotional right. ritual of, for want of a better word, sort of, gang rape of a young right. boy. Right. 
the rituals that we make up for any culture, I think they're often well-intentioned, and then there's sometimes a cover, so we can do whatever we want, in the guise of being well-intentioned. I do think in this case, someone did tell me that there is a tribe in Papua New Guinea, and it might have been the South Foray, who did practice some variation of that. Someone, One of my father's friends, who also had worked with um, Gajasek, had told me that when the boys were of a certain age, they were brought into an elder's hut and taught the ways of love. Right. I don't know what that means, and if he was being sort of... Um, if he was being flippant, he might have been as well. But I, I, I do think that it was... You know, cultures that sexualize children, I don't think you can make any sort of sweeping generalizations about them. But they do to tend to live in quite close physical proximity to one another, and their lives tend to be short. You know, I mean, it, adolescence is hurried along, and, and they tend to be highly ritualistic. And, you know, it was, it was great fun writing the rituals. You know? I mean, I, I, love, I love ritual-heavy cultures, um, because, you know, I'm not from one, my, I, you know, America is, is in itself not one, and when you aren't raised with the religion, you're fascinated by those things. Um, but it is, and it, all my sort of liberal uh, sensitivities were being battled all over the place, and and to some extent also by the consciousness of, firstly, what we know happens to Norton, and right. secondly, by the sense of him looking at this ritual, and then it's, to some extent... Using it to his own ends. One of the I mean, extraordinary things about the novel, I think, is the constant slippage between not quite knowing to the extent to which he, is he justifying what happens later? Is he, to some extent, blaming the ritual? Or right. is, is there something in him already that responds to the ritual? And, I thought the question of whether he is or isn't a pedophile sort of incidental yeah. to the book itself. For me, personally, it was. You know, I, I, think it's, I think it's part of who he is, but I think he would be just as... He would be just as damaged and the same character either way, I think. He's someone who, I think, partly out of lack of actual facility, and, and also because he is so childlike and self-absorbed, takes advantage of whatever he can find to fulfill his hungers. Just so, and, and he doesn't really look for justification. Like he, no. never, he never uses what he has seen as justification. He rarely does. I, I personally don't know whether okay. moving contexts or moving locations really liberates something in anyone. I don't think it really does. I think it's, it's a convenient answer, as you said, after the fact. But I think that he... In a way, he was simply too lazy to imagine a different life for himself. I mean, you're right, he does have a very limited imagination, and he could have found for himself a different sort of life in America, in the context of America, but he didn't. And I do think that that's the other sort of part of colonization. I think people do use being in a naive land where they're the powerful one as an excuse for all sorts of bad behavior that they wouldn't do back in their own society, both because it's illegal and and because... They don't want to sully their society. And so, you know, you go off and you do horrible things in some other person's society because you think it doesn't count. And of course it does count. But I do think there's a long tradition of people doing that, of going elsewhere, behaving poorly, doing things they know are, at the very least, legally wrong and often morally wrong. Often in terms of a kind of sexual tourism. Often, that in, right. And it's, it's one of, I mean, for example, something like Joe Orton and a, and a, and right. a generation of... Right. of uh, going to Morocco, gay, gay and, like, going yeah, to Morocco. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's a fascinating moment listen I've been in places where it's so easy to dehumanize other people when you are the powerful one or the rich one and you're, in, in Norton's case it's actually a little different he really doesn't have very much power yeah. there. he's sort of helpless except for the own sense of his own sort of 
national superiority. But I do think that there is something, and that's the traveler's great, um, that's the great thrill of travel, but it's also a poison thrill because when you go and you feel, start feeling, you start behaving poorly or you start behaving differently than you would in your own country, that is part of the fun of travel, to try to try on a different mask. But the question is, you start to wonder, do I treat people with dignity back home only because I'm, I'm obligated to, socially obligated to? And if that's the reason, what does it say about me as a person? If I, if I, can behave, if I could behave without a consequence to people, whether it's taking advantage of them sexually or barking at them or, you know, or you know, throwing, throwing something at them, treating them anything less than human, and there is no consequences because no one's watching, it's not illegal. What does that say about me as a person? You know, if, if, if how I treat people must be, you know, must be overseen and legislated, and I must have a witness in order for me to behave properly, that means that I'm probably a terrible person, you know? And I think, that, I think that's why travel is intoxicating, but also why it really makes us forget our humanity. You know, I, I, I know this woman who is a very, very... She's a travel writer, and she's always on the road. She treats people terribly when she's on the road, and she feels sort of in America. I think she feels very powerless, but when she's in Southeast Asia, she's someone else entirely, and she is the madam and the boss. And watching that transformation is startling. Can I ask about cultural relativism? I don't mentions the, the the phrase. The novel is complicates these issues, explores them, and doesn't really offer, offer answers as, as good as fiction should. I was wondering, was that was that deliberate, that grey area? And, and I was wondering where you, as a travel writer, where, where do you stand? I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of the question for anyone who observes human nature, whether you're a writer or you're a traveller or you're anyone who really is engaged with, or you're a lawmaker. I think, first of all, there's very, very few things, and I can't think of anything, actually, that are moral absolutes in every society. I mean, even murder itself is often justified in, in certain places, whether it's ritualized murder or revenge murder, so on and so forth. When it comes to interpreting, you know, I don't... No, you know, I, I, you, know you and I both live in, in cultures where I think a great deal is allowed. And then when we start drawing lines on things like general, general, female genital mutilation, it can often feel quite random, you know? Why is that allowed and certain other things aren't? And then you have places like France and Japan, which are just drawing a clean line through everything. You know, if you're there, you live by the rules of that society, and, you, and that's it, full stop. And, and I guess I, I just don't know. When you go to a France or a Japan, you, you go knowing you're going to be giving up the traditions and rituals of your home country. You just will. You have to be French or you have to be Japanese. That's it. You know, you can't be a hyphenated Japanese. You know, if you're Iranian or if you're Brazilian, once you set foot on that land and you become a citizen, or you agree to live there, you agree to live under the laws of that country. That's it, you know. Obviously it becomes much more glorious and much muddier when you're at a, when you're in, in, the, uh, in the pluralistic society. I don't know, I don't think there is really an answer because there's so few examples of, of, of the, these sorts of societies throughout history. Yeah. I mean, 
Oh, that's that's not true. A lot of a lot of a lot of ancient places did have you know Jews living among them and Muslims and so on, and, and a great deal was allowed and tolerated and accepted. And in America, of course, you also have all of these questions intersecting with the right of privacy and the right of free expression, and how much can be jurisdicted by the state and how much should be. So. And is, I mean, you were talking that there aren't many moral absolutes. Um, I mean, children, and what were the conversation we were just having earlier about se- sexualizing children? I mean, it, I, there I took it straight from life, but it is the thing that makes people, that has sort of the greatest gag factor, you know I mean? It is something that, that repulses people, like nothing else. I mean, you know, people can forgive murder, but they can't forgive the exploitation of children and I, I, I personally don't believe children are sexualized or, or, or sexual beings but when a child becomes a sexual being I agree that's a muddier question you know I, I when I was growing up in Hawaii the age of consent was very young it was 13 I think or 14 it was very young 16 in the rest of America a 14 year old I don't know, but I mean, I, I do think for me it was it was an interesting question of power. I mean, I do think children are powerless. Some of them may be sexual, and some of them may think may even want to have sex. But the power imbalance between an adult having sex with a child, I think, is always something that, if I don't find repulsive, I at least find um, criminal. You know, I, I do think that that sort of abuse. I think when you're 14, you may know enough, and you may genuinely be someone who thinks in terms of eroticism but I, I and I don't think there's anything wrong with a 14 year old having sex with another 14 year old well, another 16 year old but having sex with a 40 year old I think is, is different and I think that's it's the abuse of power I think I, that makes people upset as well as the the burden of giving a child something that they may not possess, in this case, a sexual consciousness that makes people very upset. And the novel complicates that very, very sort of subtly and neatly by having the ritual be started by the chief. There was a feeling I had of recreating that ritual within America, which somehow feels more shocking. Right. Um, I mean, those are the the cultural justice questions. Right, right. And is it... I do think that we feel it is less shocking when it happens somewhere other. You know, with children who don't look like our children and don't feel recognisable. I mean, and that was the whole. I mean, that was the whole outrage of Jeffrey Dahmer. Remember, he he found boys who were not white, who were immigrant children, who were you know, they were they were Asian and Latino immigrant children, as I recall, and they weren't taken seriously yeah. when they were found running about. And I do think that that is that was the great shock and shame of that scandal more than anything else. Is that because the children, yeah, yeah, didn't look like our meaning, you know, white children somehow taken less seriously. Colonialism has always been tied in with sex. You know, this idea, again, that what we can't do in our own home country, the women or, or boys or children of another country are dying for, or they don't care about it, or they really want it, or the values are different there. I mean, you know, the two have always gone hand in hand. The conquest of the land has always gone hand in hand with the conquest of to fulfill, you know, our sexual desires and our sexual needs under the guise of, you know, it's a certain kind of flimsy justification here.
this is a book to some extent written for another man right. and there is a relationship hinted and again I don't want to sort of um, but a bit of a, a younger man for an older man a, right. a, a, an acolyte and a sort of a, right. a master he has obviously has huge respect but what he, again what isn't said is perhaps more powerful than what, what is said I was curious about, about the idea of, of the footnotes but also of, of the idea of it being edited and right. how you dealt with what would seem to be the most damning piece of evidence, which is excised but then sort of pla- right. placed in. I'm glad that you mentioned that because one of the tricky things I wanted to do with Ron's character, who's the one footnoting it, is I think there's, over the progression, I hope, of the novel, he slips a little bit. I mean, there's, and the inclusion of the footnote is the biggest slippage. I mean, I always thought of it as sort of, the real tragedy of the story is Ron's tragedy, I think, because he has, he genuinely does idolize Norton and over the course of reading this book you know Norton's narrative he there I think as the footnotes go on and on there are more and more times when he has to remind himself I respect this man I love this man when people say he's doing wrong they just don't understand and so it becomes a sort of chant to himself that he has made the right decision aligning himself with him and Norton never reciprocates any of that affection to Ron. Um, there's a, one very early part in the very beginning, the introduction, when he quotes some sort of letter from Norton about how Norton says he's completely alone and no one loves him and yeah. he's sitting in the air all alone as no one around him. And when my editor read that, he wrote read about Ron. But he's not meant to think of Ron as someone he really respects and treasures, he treasures talent. And that's about it. I mean, that's really the only person he's ever really, I think, come close to loving in that sort of way. So Ron has aligned himself with someone who not only doesn't love him, but is compromised, and Ron knows it. And so to me, the fact that he knows it and goes ahead with it anyway is very sad, and I think there's all sorts of circumstances of people knowing that the person they're with is not quite a good person and forcing themselves to disbelieve and, and to go along with that anyway. And we see that with politicians and politicians' wives. You know, we see this, you know, people who will justify their life decisions to the end even if that means justifying behavior of someone else, because to say that another person is a monster means that they've aligned themselves with a monster. But in the end, I think, Ron isn't able to lie to such an extent that he can't help but tip his hat and, and, and let the reader know what he knows. Because that's, and that tension is almost expressed with two, two extraordinary moments. There's a, there's a, a very long footnote. And the, the footnotes get sort of progressively longer. Yeah. So he's almost, as you say, just, Straining, straining to, to sort of justify, and then a moment where a, a vital, a vital piece of testimony, a, vi- a vital right. scene, and is is excised. So again, it's these things, the things that are said and unsaid, and, right. and the power of those two things. Right, right, right. And you know, I mean, I think that's sort of a metaphor for anthropology in general. You know, the neatness of theories. You know, you have a theory about a people or about a place, and then there's lots of stuff that just doesn't work. You know, when, when we look at modern anthropology. A lot of people look at Margaret Mead, we look at Napoleon Chardin, I mean a lot of those people left great deal a great deal of contradictory information out. And it makes sense, you know, no culture is so neatly summarized. And but it's not sensational if you say, but there's this exception, this exception. Then you just realize, oh well this is another boring society, boring just like ours, with some extraordinary aspects to it. But in the end, it's not that different. And that's the great sort of I guess lie of anthropology that cultures are fundamentally not that different from one another. I mean, there's 
sort of accessories that are different, I think, and markers that are different, but humankind is more or less the same in many, many ways. Um, and anthropologists are truly trying to sell the sizzle, at least when it's being presented to a general audience.